Good morning. Today's scripture reading is in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. And we'll be starting in the middle of verse 18. Uh, this passage can be found on the uh, Pew Bible on page 1161. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, will this mean fruitful labor for me? What shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to, be, uh, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you, for your progress and joy in the faith. So that, through my being with you, again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. May God bless the reading of this word. Find your way to Philippians chapter 1. We are looking at 1.18 through 26 this morning, which you'll know if you were here last week is a bit out of order. Uh, we had planned to look at this passage two weeks ago when we had to cancel the service because of the storm and the power outage. So we're back here this morning, uh, backing up a little bit. Next week we'll be back on track in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So turn to Philippians 1.18. Again, that's on page 1161 if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you. John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, tells the story of an older gentleman whom his father had led to the Lord. The church had prayed for this man for years, yet he had been consistently resistant to the gospel, to the message that our sin, our disobedience to God, really is sinful and deserving of God's righteous punishment, but that God's grace in Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross to rescue us from that sin, for those who place their faith in Him, that God's grace is sufficient to deal with our sins, to forgive us, to bring us new life and peace with God. And this gentleman had resisted that message for decades. And one day, uh, now in his old age, he showed up while Piper's father was preaching. And as Piper writes, God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ. And he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But, he continues, that did not stop this man from sobbing and saying as the tears ran down his wrinkled face, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. He had come to his end and now seeing Jesus for the first time realized he had wasted his life. That story left an indelible mark on Piper as a child. What will it take when I come to the end of my days not to have wasted my life? The Apostle Paul is interested in this same question in our passage in Philippians 1, 18-26. And his answer is that everything turns on treasuring Jesus. 
everything. So let's pray and we'll look into God's word. Lord, what a sweet joy it is to gather together, to sing the praise, do your name, to open your word and to hear from you, to carry our hearts and our burdens and our joys to you in prayer. It is a sweet thing to be gathered with your people in your presence. We pray you bless our time and you bless our opening of your word. Give us eyes to see you, ears to hear your voice, and hearts ready to be changed by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. Amen. We've been looking at Philippians for several weeks now, uh, a book that is consumed with the exhilarating prospect of partnering together in and for the gospel of Jesus, the good news of God's grace and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wants God's people, God's church, to be a community that is shaped by this gospel together and is on mission for the advance of this gospel, partnering together. That's his vision for this book. So he opened the book by praying for the Philippians' gospel partnership in verses 3 through 11 in chapter 1. Then he began discussing the ironic joy of gospel partnership in verses 12 through 26, which includes our passage this morning. There is an ironic joy in being bound together in and for the gospel of Jesus, a joy that doesn't make sense. That's what I mean by ironic. A few weeks ago when we looked at 1, 12 through 18, we saw how what looked on, like on the surface as failure and defeat, a traveling preacher, Paul, stuck in prison, unable to be out in the marketplace in the synagogues preaching Jesus, and then becoming the target of a growing competition of other preachers who think they can take advantage of him while he's confined and, and make much of themselves. So what looks very much like defeat and failure on the surface, we saw how God was at work to accomplish the very thing that Paul was sent to do, to advance the gospel of Jesus. We saw that it was expanding through his imprisonment. Uh, the entire prison guard had become aware of it uh, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. We saw how more and more people, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, because of Paul's example, we're being bold to preach that gospel in 1.14, even if some of them did so out of false motives, 1.15 through 17. So Paul looks at all this apparent defeat, and he says in verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And in that, I rejoice. That's a joy that doesn't make sense. This ironic joy continues in our section this morning, from the middle of verse 18 through 26. And here it's a joy that is rooted in Paul's confidence that God is going to deliver him. Paul is confident that God's going to deliver him. Look at the middle of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice... For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul's rejoicing in the prospect of being delivered by God. But what does he mean by deliverance? What kind of rescue or deliverance is he talking about? Well, when someone's sitting in prison, they're supposed to be out there preaching in the synagogues and so on, but they're locked up and they talk about their confidence of being delivered, what's it sound like they're probably talking about? Getting out of prison. Uh, and Paul is quite confident that he's going to be released. If you look down at verses 25 and 26, he's convinced that he will continue to live to avoid execution this time and to come again to the Philippian church and minister to them. So Paul is confident that he's going to get out, and therefore some readers understand that the deliverance he's speaking about in verse 19 is just that, getting out of prison. There are good reasons, however, to think that Paul actually has something much bigger than getting out of prison in his sights. In fact, when we look at verse 20, we see that his joyful confidence of being delivered isn't at all contingent on being set free from prison. He says in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, here it is, whether by life or by death. Now, what kind of deliverance can this be? A salvation he can depend on whether or not his life is cut off from this world. Paul is looking toward the kind of deliverance that one finds when standing before the Lord on the final day and hearing the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. A vindication that his life and work and the trials that characterize them were not in vain. Paul's joyful confidence is that when he comes to the end, Christ will have been exalted in his body, magnified, made much of in all circumstances, such that he will not have wasted his life. That's the joyful confidence of deliverance he has. Now, that's a pretty bold confidence. Almost sounds a bit cocky in some ways. How can he be so sure? You know, where does this joyful confidence come from? Well, first, Paul is not talking about a life of sinless perfection. When he writes in 1 Timothy toward the end of his life and he reflects back on his journey, he considers himself to be the chief of sinners. So, the kind of life not wasted, this kind of final vindication that his life has, has mattered for the Lord, is not talking about a sinless perfection. It's not that he will never make mistakes. He is talking about a life of faithfulness to God, a life where our faith bears fruit in our love and our deeds and our obedience. And that does matter. We're called by God's grace, even when we make mistakes, to correct them. So a, a course, faithfulness as a course of life. One author describes this as a long obedience in the same direction. 
So it's not that we don't trip. It's not that we don't make mistakes. But we're moving in that direction as God calls us to. So he's not talking about sinless perfection. Second, Paul's confidence has nothing to do with his own strength. He is completely dependent on the prayers of God's people and on the power of Christ's Spirit. Look again at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, for my vindication in the end. So finishing well was not something Paul was capable of doing in and of himself. When Paul walked his own road, he was walking in the opposite direction of God. He describes his former life in Galatians 1. How he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's Paul, apart from Jesus. It wasn't until God stopped him dead in his tracks while he was on his way to Damascus to throw the fledgling church there into prison that his eyes were opened to Jesus, though temporarily blinded by the vision of him. You can read about that in Acts 9. So it's the grace and mercy of God that Paul even knows Jesus and wants to walk with him. And it's the same grace that enables him to walk with God. It's not about trying harder. It's about trusting in Jesus through the prayers of God's people and the power of God's Spirit. That's what he attributes his strength to. These two things which work so closely together, they almost look like one thing. The prayers of God's people, the power of God's Spirit. Through your prayers, and more literally, the provision or supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I want us to think about what he's saying here. When God's people pray, God's Spirit is poured out and provided. That's pretty amazing. So our prayers are not wishful thinking. I'm not just sending positive thoughts your direction. I'm calling on the creator of the universe and the savior of humanity who alone has authority and power to do something about the situation and who delights to do so through the power of his spirit. And I'm asking God to do it. That's prayer. That is what God has given us to be able to do for one another. The prayers of God's people unleash the power of God's Spirit to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. So when we pray for each other, do we pray this way? Do we really expect God to answer? Do we believe that His Spirit is what's at work? There is a joyful privilege of sharing life together by praying for one another and seeing each other strengthened by the Spirit of God that we might finish well. So Paul's confidence in finishing well is not about perfection here. It has nothing to do with his own strength. Third, It has nothing to do with Paul's own reputation either. 
Paul's joyful confidence in coming to the end of his life and finishing well, not about his own reputation. Rather, everything is about Jesus. For Paul, finishing well turns entirely upon treasuring Christ. And that's where we're, it's on this point we're going to spend the rest of our time. Treasuring Jesus, making much of Christ, honoring, magnifying Christ. That was Paul's singular goal, both for himself and for the people he invested in. It gave focus to his life and his work. We see this in verse 20. What is it he eagerly expects and hopes to happen? That I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that Now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. He will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is the criterion by which he evaluates whether or not his life can count as having been well-lived, not wasted. That his life would not be characterized by fear and shame, but rather with courage in every circumstance, whether pain or pleasure, imprisonment or freedom, that Christ would be honored in his body. That's the goal. That's the criteria. Everything is about Jesus. Because Jesus is everything. For Paul personally, and for his ministry. So if he lives, he wants his life to bear fruit for Jesus. That's what it's about. He says so in verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Well, what does he mean by fruitful labor? What does that look like? Helping others to make much of Jesus. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So the goal of Paul's ministry is that the gospel would advance among the Philippians through them for their progress and joy in the faith. That they would delight, that they would grow in their delight in Jesus. That their joy would overflow and so live a life that honors him. That's Paul's goal for himself and for those to whom he ministers, that Christ would be exalted, honored, treasured, glorified, magnified, made much of, that Jesus Christ would be everything to us. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the goal. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, is Jesus your goal? Is he my goal? Is he the goal of your career? Is he the goal of your business? To honor Christ, to show off his beauty, his kindness, his integrity, his mercy. Or is the goal just to make money? To have comfort and security in this life? Is Jesus the goal of your recreation? To... Enjoy and make much of Jesus by enjoying his good creation that he's given us. Is he the goal of our education? 
Is he the goal that we parents hold before our kids? Or is there some other goal? To be great at something. That's the goal. Whether it's school or sports or music or art or just to be well-behaved for once. What's our goal? Is Jesus the goal? Here's the question. How do I know if my life and relationships are bearing fruit that will last? That's the question. How can I share in Paul's confidence of finishing well? Not perfection, but direction. Here is a clear criterion to evaluate our parenting, our discipleship, our evangelism, our career, our preaching, our marriage, our friendships. Does my investment in this person or this relationship help them make much of Jesus? That's the criteria. Does what I'm giving to this relationship help them make much of Jesus? Does the way that I love this person help them love Jesus more? Not just help them feel more loved. That's a good thing. That's not the best thing. The best thing is for them to delight in Jesus more. Does the way that I... Do the ministries of this church result in more and more people delighting in Christ, treasuring Him? Does the way that I parent help my children treasure Jesus more? Not their own performance or accomplishment. That, my friends, is fruit that will last. That is fruit that will last if you help someone to make more of Jesus in their life. That's a life well lived. So what keeps us on track of pursuing Jesus for ourselves and for others? Well, for Paul, Jesus is not only the goal for our lives, he's also the motivation. He's also the motivation. Christ himself is the prize, the reward. We don't make much of Jesus so that we can get something else out of him. That's our temptation. That's our tendency. I'll follow Christ. I'll you know, magnify him and so on so that he'll give me what I really want in life. You know, happiness, success, health, so on. You know, Jesus is the goal and the motivation. I make much of Christ because I want more of Christ. That's the goal. There's nothing greater than him. So treasuring Jesus not only gives us a focus for our life, a goal, it gives us freedom as well, a motivation. If he is our treasure and we're, we, we are then truly free to follow him, whatever the cost. And Paul shows us what that looks like in two key ways in our passage. First, Treasuring Jesus as our motivation frees us to pursue our goal, honoring him, despite our circumstances. So when Jesus is our treasure and our motivation, we are free to pursue him despite our circumstances, even the circumstances of death. And that's a huge part of what Paul is dealing with in this passage. 
and why he can be confident in a deliverance or a vindication that's bigger than getting out of jail alive. Listen again to the, to the middle, uh, starting in the middle of verse 20. He expects that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, well, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. As Paul sat in prison, he knew full well that execution was a live option for his captors. For to proclaim Jesus as king and savior of the world was, to the Roman Empire, a treasonous claim that some king other than Caesar was in charge. He knew what the risks of following Jesus were. He knew that his life might very well be poured out as a drink offering, as he describes it in 2.17. And yet he still sought hard after Christ for himself and for others, because he was motivated by something greater than the risk. He was motivated by Jesus. Verse 21, perhaps the most famous verse in the book of Philippians, is the essence of Paul's motivation. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die, gain. Think about that sentence for a minute. For to me, to live is Christ. That means whatever days the Lord gives me are to be spent for Him. Enjoying Him, serving Him. And if we spend our days that way, they won't be wasted. Because Jesus is worth it. Now, that does not mean that the Christian life is easy. It doesn't mean it was easy for Paul. Elsewhere, he speaks of a suffering that drove him to despair of life itself. In 2 Corinthians 1. Having Christ as our motivation doesn't mean we're not going to face crippling trials or great fear, great suffering. It does mean that it's not in vain. Should following Christ result even in death, it's not in vain. It has not been wasted. Because as Paul continues, to die is gain. So in other words, to live is Christ, to die even more of Christ. Paul says in verse 23, to depart this world and be with Jesus in the joy and presence of his unveiled glory is better by far. So much better. Paul honestly has a hard time deciding if given the opportunity, he would choose to face execution and be with Jesus or stay behind and continue his ministry 
among the Philippians and the other churches. Either way was a win for Paul. Because death for the Christian is not the end. It's not the end. We have to understand that. We have a Savior who took upon himself the cause of death. Our very sins. And bore in himself on the cross the full weight of God's anger against that sin. The death that we deserve in order to free us from it. And to forgive us for those sins. And we have a Savior who on the third day rose from the dead and conquered death. Death is an enemy. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And we grieve. We grieve honestly. We grieve hard when it happens. But death is a defeated enemy. And so we don't grieve like those in, in the world. It's a defeated enemy. Jesus wrested us from death's claim and brought new life and resurrection to all who believe. So if you are a Christian, if you have placed the full weight of your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and in his death and life and resurrection for you, then you have great hope in the face of death the hope of eternal life, the hope of the resurrection, which all God's people look forward to on the day when Christ returns. Paul says at the end of chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious his resurrection body. In Jesus, death is gain. That's an ironic joy. That's an ironic joy. Paul could face any circumstance in life with courage because he knew that every circumstance, whether life or death, was an opportunity to make much of Jesus. John G. Patton, a missionary to the South Pacific Islands, in the mid-1800s, captures this spirit uh, well. And as Patton prepared to leave for the New Hebrides, he was warned by an aging Christian, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. In other words, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do we really believe that life is all about Jesus and that death is actually gain? That's a hard one. That's a hard one. Do we believe what we sang earlier, that it is not death to die? 
Do we believe this? Not just for the dramatic stories of missionaries and martyrs. We can, we can see it there. Yeah, great. Do we believe this for the slow and unexciting death caused by age? For the painful death that comes from cancer and disease? For the sudden death that comes from an accident or a stroke or a heart attack? Do we believe that for all Christians, regardless of the age, that death is always gain. Always better by far. Because it's not just more of Jesus, it's all of Jesus. And does that belief give us courage to face the most ridiculous of circumstances in this life. So what keeps us from it then? What keeps us from this thinking? Well, I think that the issue for so many of us, and myself included, is that we complete the sentence, for to me, to live is blank with something other than Christ. We answer, for to me, to live is family, to live is career, to live is to fish, to vacation on the Cape, to fornicate, to recreate. For me, to live is to party with my friends, to live is my own righteousness, my own religious accomplishment. For to me, to live is to recycle to travel, to ski, to succeed, to consume, to be made much of by others. And so Jesus isn't really our goal or our motivation. He's not our greatest treasure. And that means that we are in serious risk of coming to the end of our days and discovering that we've wasted the whole thing. For as one of my former pastors says, if this be our life, all these things, then death is the loss of everything. But if Jesus is our treasure, if he is our joy, our delight, the greatest thing this world affords, then to live is Christ and to die is gain. So treasuring Jesus frees us to pursue our goal despite our circumstances, even death. And finally, treasuring Jesus frees us to place the good of others above the good of self. And this is where Paul's wrestling ultimately takes him in this passage. He knows what's best for him is actually execution. To depart and be with Christ is better by far. And yet he knows in his bones that his work here is not done. He says in verse 24, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with you all for your progress and join the faith 
so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, at the end of the day, Paul doesn't get a pick whether he gets executed or not. Uh, God is the one who numbers our days. But because Jesus is his treasure, his goal, and his motivation, his desire to delight in Jesus is not only for himself, but for others, such that he's willing and eager to stick around longer and help the Philippians continue to grow in their faith. To help them become more and more enthralled with and obedient to Jesus. He's free to lay aside what's best for him in order to pursue what's best for them. And that's a value he calls all of us to in chapter 2, as we saw last week. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Paul's desire to stick around is an example of that value. Only Jesus can free us to think and to love that way. Only when we're satisfied in Christ are we free to give with no concern for what we get back. Only when Jesus is everything are we free to lay aside everything else in order to make much of him and to help others make much of him. Only in Jesus. So may Christ captivate our hearts in that way. That we might be free to live for Christ and if necessary to die for Christ. And spend our lives on that which will last. Let's pray. Lord, there's nothing greater there's nothing more necessary, more timely, more needed for any of us than to see and to treasure Jesus above everything else in this world. Open our eyes and our hearts to gaze upon his beauty. Help us look at our lives, at our sin and see the ugliness of it in comparison with Christ and help us in the same glance to see His face in place of ours. His beauty covering our ugliness. His righteous life covering our sin. May we make much of Christ in every way and help others to make much of Christ in every way. Whether by life or death. 